It's great to see you all this morning. You guys all braved the fog, the Thule fog. This is as close as we get to white Christmas, so you better enjoy it. I'm glad you're here. If we have not met yet, my name is Russell Horner. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my privilege this morning to be able to preach the word. Now, if you haven't been to Sovereign Grace before, I want to welcome you. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Thankful you found us. We're going to be in John chapter 11, John 11 today. So let's dive into God's word together. John chapter 11. As we contemplate, we consider this great I am statement, this fifth I am statement, the resurrection and the life. Now we will read from verse 21 to 27, but we're pretty much going to cover the whole chapter. So I hope you brought a lunch. It might be a little while. 21 to 27. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, You are glorious in and of Yourself. And we pray that as we consider Your Word, as we meditate on it and think about it, that Your glory would shine through. That Your Spirit would open our eyes to see the glorious truth You have for us. Your Spirit would convict our heart to change, to repent of our sin, to cling to Jesus as our only hope. And your spirit would empower us to live out these glorious truths that we are considering this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. This probably will sound a little strange to many of you, but there's a part of me that actually likes going to funerals. That sounds really weird, right? I know. Before you think I'm trying to enter some kind of goth phase in my life or whatever, let me explain. There's a huge part of me, in fact, almost all of me that absolutely hates it. I hate seeing what death does to people. I hate seeing the weight of death on friends and family and people I love. It leaves me speechless most of the time. But there is a small part of me that wants to recognize, sometimes against my will, that it's also really good for me to go to funerals. Not just to be there for people that I love and care for, but it's really good for my own sake to remember my own mortality, to remember the fact that my days are numbered, that God appoints my days, and I can do nothing to change that. And that sooner or later, I will end up in that coffin, and so will everyone I love. I know that sounds probably even twisted or strange to most people, because that's not the way our world thinks about death, is it? Not even close. We like to pretend that death doesn't even exist. It has nothing to do with our lives at all. 
In fact, I listened to a sermon recently from Michael Horton. He's a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. And he said, really, our culture deals with death in three ways. The first way, we tend to just deny it. Act like it's a normal, natural part of life, right? It's just yin and yang or the circle of life or whatever you want to call it. No one really dies. They just move on. They just pass on to a better place. That's how we think about it. Or we deflect it. We deflect it. We say, well, we'll just push it out of sight and out of mind. We'll cover up any reminder of death in our culture, whether it's through hair dye or Botox or plastic surgery or whatever it is to help us to remember that we're not going to die. Or even convince ourselves that we can somehow postpone death through diet or exercise or mass or vaccines or better health accounts, better savings accounts or better security, whatever it takes. I mean, think about it. We used to walk right along the cemetery as we came to church. Right along beside the cemetery. They were right outside the church as a sobering reminder of what we're about to do as we worship God. Passing our loved ones that have died before us as we enter into the presence of God to remember that our days are limited. Not in our culture. We take those cemeteries and we put them as far as we can on the edge of town so we never have to drive by them at all. Right? Out of sight, out of mind. We deny death, we deflect it, and we also, we downplay it, don't we? We laugh at it, we mock it, we put it in our entertainment as if it's funny, or as if it's not one of our gravest enemies. We even have to redefine funerals so that we can downplay death. We'll just call it a celebration of life or talk about good memories, right? I recently had a neighbor of mine go through a horrible tragedy. He lost both of his parents within one week. Terrible, terrible tragedy. He's not a believer. I've been praying for him for a while, and I was actually a little encouraged when he asked one of the pastors from Sovereign Grace to do the funeral. And so I was encouraged. We talked to him about what the funeral looked like. We're going to talk about death and sin and heaven and hell, and we'll talk about our hope. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he cut us off. So you know what? I don't want any of that. I grew up with hell, fire, brimstone. I don't want any of that. I want somebody to come and say something that just makes us all feel better. It's the way our world thinks, isn't it? Say whatever it takes to convince us that this is not a terrible tragedy. We can deny, we can deflect, we can downplay death all day long, but it makes no difference. This world is filled with death, and it's coming for us. Sooner or later, we all die. Mortality rate is pretty much still 100%. Enoch, Elijah kind of throw that off a little bit. But it's still 100%. You will die. It shouldn't take a global pandemic or a bad diagnosis at the doctor to realize that. That just shines the light on what's actually happening. That our world is in bondage to sin and death. And we can see it, can't we? Hebrews 2.15 says, Through fear of death, all of us really are subject to lifelong slavery. Don't you see that in our world? As people make these decisions, especially in light of COVID, how they live in the fear of death and its bondage. Many of us enter into that same bondage and fear, don't we? Well, what does Jesus offer us? What hope does Jesus give sinners like us who are in bondage to sin and death? Well, he gives us the greatest hope of all. It's not breathing techniques. It's not better counseling. 
It's himself. He gives us himself, the resurrection and the life. That is our hope in the face of death. You see, in this chapter, Jesus' disciples are confronted with their own bondage to sin and death. And it breaks them. And Jesus uses three things. He kind of wields three things to comfort his people and to show them that he is the only solution to their bondage to sin and death. Those three things are truth, tears, and transformation. He uses truth with Martha, as we'll see. He uses his tears to comfort and care for the people around Mary and Mary herself. And he uses the transformation, the resurrection of Lazarus to preview the great resurrection to come. So truth, tears, and transformation. Now before we get into the details of the truth, let's let John set the stage of the story. He will tell us the characters and kind of the layout in verse 1 of chapter 11. So go to verse 1. John 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So we have the place, we have Bethany, this little town right outside Jerusalem, and we have our three main characters. We have Lazarus, this man that's on his deathbed, and then we have Mary and Martha, his sisters. Now we probably recognize Mary and Martha from that story in Luke 10, when Martha is busy and hosting and caring and taking care of all the details, and her good-for-nothing sister is at Jesus' feet just taking it all in. We might remember Martha and Mary for that. The audience, John's audience, as it says in verse 2, would recognize Mary as the one who anointed Jesus before he was being buried. She poured that perfume on him. Now that actually hasn't even happened in the book of John yet. That'll happen in the next chapter, but her reputation precedes her. And so it's meant to be, oh, that Mary, that's the one that anointed Jesus. Oh, that's the one we're talking about here. Now don't you love the way that Lazarus is described in verse 3? Isn't it glorious? Lord, he whom you love is ill. I love it. They don't even use his name. Just the one you love. Now it will become clear that this family loves Jesus. They cared for Jesus. They hosted Jesus. They supported Jesus in many ways. But John wants us to know from the beginning, it's not that they love Jesus that we want to see. It's Jesus' love for them. Jesus' love drives everything he does in this chapter, as it drives everything he does, period. And it makes it really hard to see when you look at verses like verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now catch this. So, so, therefore, right, because of this love, in other words, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Yes, you heard that right. He loved her and the family, so he stayed. What? Does that make sense to anybody here? That does not seem loving to me. And it doesn't seem loving. It seems actually hateful, cold-hearted even. I mean, you tell me, if you found out that somebody you loved was ill, wouldn't you pack up your stuff immediately and rush to their bedside? Wouldn't you get on the first plane flight, do whatever it took to be there as they died? 
I mean, I've talked to some of you, and you've talked about COVID restrictions, said, you know what, shoot anything you want to in my arm. I am going to be in that hospital with the one that's dying. Because that's loving, right? Apparently not for Jesus, as it seems. How can this be loving? How is this an act of love? Well, verse 4 explains it. But when Jesus heard it, heard that Lazarus was about to die, he said, this illness does not lead to death. That's great news. Lazarus will make it out of this alive. He still has to suffer. You would think that Jesus would want to help with that. But then Jesus says this, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You see what Jesus just did? He gave us the goal of this whole story. He showed us the purpose of his delay right there. The purpose is so that God's glory would be revealed in an incredible way. It's loving to delay, even let them suffer, so that this glory can be shown forth through Jesus. That's the other point of the passage, is that this glory is centered around the Son of Man. It's the Son of Man that's the main character. It's not Lazarus. Lazarus is a part of this story, but it's Jesus that's the main character that the glory will be revealed from. It's almost as if this, like a sportscaster, you've seen on broadcasts and stuff, when they would circle a player before a play and say, keep your eye on this guy. Keep your eye on this guy. I know a lot of stuff's going to happen all around them, but keep your eye on this player because something amazing is going to happen through them. This is Jesus circling himself saying, keep your eyes on me throughout this story because God's glory will come showing through my life in an incredible way in what I'm about to do. And so we have the characters, the place, and now we know to keep our eyes on Jesus as he reveals this glorious truth. Starting in verse 17. We see him reveal this truth to Martha. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days days. That's John telling us that Lazarus, he's really, really dead. Not mostly dead, like Princess Bride. Not mostly dead, really, really dead. As Martha will actually say later, he's going to stink. He's decaying at this point. And John gives us this detail so that nobody can say, you know what, Jesus, I know you tried to raise Lazarus from the dead, but you didn't really raise him. You just resuscitated him. You just kind of woke him up. That's what you really did. Not after four days. It would take an act of God to raise this man from the dead. And that's the point. That's exactly what Jesus wanted. For God's glory to shine through in this incredible resurrection that only God could do. Look at verse 18. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now this must have been an incredible and terrible scene. Funerals back then were not like funerals they are today, where they're somber and quiet and stoic really in a lot of ways. Funerals back then, there was wailing and crying. They would hire professional mourners to come and lead dirges, lead the scene and lead the people in crying. So it would be loud and it would be commotion and it would sometimes last for days on end. This is four days after his death. And this is the kind of crowd that Jesus comes into here in Bethany. And Martha comes running to Jesus, verse 20. 
So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now we don't get the benefit of knowing her tone here, how this came across. We might read this very much an accusation, almost blaming Jesus and saying, look, Jesus, you could have done something and you weren't here. You've really dropped the ball. You've really messed up. You should have been here. And I'm sure there's an element of that in the confusion there, but there's more to it than that because look at the next verse. She still has great faith. Verse 22. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Surely Martha's disappointed. She doesn't know what's happening. And this so sounds like one of the Psalms, doesn't it? One of those laments when they're asking, God, why? What is going on here? But at the end of the day, at the end of the psalm, they say, I trust you. I know who you are. I know you have a plan. And that's where Martha goes here. She doesn't even know what Jesus can do. But surely, even after death, you might be able to do something. Now, it's not as if she thought that Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead. In verse 39, she discourages him from rolling the stone away and says, no, no, he's decaying. Don't do that. So she didn't expect that he was going to raise him from the dead. Perhaps she thought, well, this man had worked miracles. He was at least a prophet. He had some kind of really special relationship with his father. Surely if there's anybody, anybody that could do anything in this situation, it has to be Jesus. But did she really know the truth about Jesus? Did she really comprehend who Jesus is? Jesus wanted to make sure that she did, and so he pushes her towards the resurrection. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. I find it fascinating that Jesus didn't merely console her here. He didn't go in and say, it's going to be okay. Give her a big hug. Say, it'll get better. He knew it would get better. He didn't console her. He didn't even offer escape. It's going to get better. I'm going to take you away from this. I'm going to free you from this. Jesus doesn't do any one of those things. He doesn't say, look, I've come to make you feel better. I've come to pull you out of this. He pushes her to the resurrection because he's saying, I've come to fix this. I've come to restore what was broken. I've come to recreate, resurrect Martha, I've come to bring life from the ashes here. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm pushing you towards the resurrection. And Martha has good theology. She knows that there will be a resurrection. Look at verse 24. Martha said to him, I know. I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Yes, Jesus, I know my Bible. I've been paying attention when you've been teaching. I know there will be a resurrection. That's just basic Jewish orthodoxy. Taken from places like Daniel 12, verse 2. She says, I have good theology. I know the truth, Jesus. But Jesus wants to know, does she know who all those truths were pointing to? Can she see through all the types and all the shadows and all the promises and let all of those rest in Christ? She had a good creed, but did the creed lead her to the Christ? That's what Jesus wants to know. And he gives her this glorious truth in verse 25. 
This is what he came to do. This is why he delayed. Verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am, Martha. I am the great I am. Going all the way back to Exodus 3, taking the name of God, Yahweh, ego a me, and Jesus saying, I am, Martha. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just a miracle worker. I don't just have some kind of connection with God that gets things done. I am God in flesh. I am Emmanuel. I have come down from heaven. And what have I come down from heaven to do? To be the resurrection and the life. To raise you from the dead. And what does that mean? Look at verse 25, right towards the middle. Whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, though he die like Lazarus, yet shall he live. That's a a statement on resurrection, isn't it? I can conquer death. I can give life. That penalty for sin, that death, I can reverse it. I can bring resurrection in this world. And, verse 26, and everyone who lives like Martha, like Mary, like us, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, I don't just save you from death. I give you eternal life. I save you from the grave, and I save you from the second death which is the death that your sin really brings, which is hell and damnation and judgment from God. Martha, I can resurrect you and save you from all the effects of death in this world. Martha, don't you know that the resurrection is not just some abstract idea? It's not some awaited reality that will eventually come one day. The resurrection is here. It's been embodied. It's been enfleshed. In Jesus, you can experience it here and now. It's not just Lazarus that needs life. It's not just his dead body that needs to be resurrected. It's your dead heart as well, Martha. And I've come to fix all of it. I've come to reverse all the bondage of sin and death in this world, both physically and spiritually. And that's why I am the resurrection and the life. That's why I am the Christ of your creed, the one to free you from sin and death forever. And that's why he asks, do you believe this? Martha, do you see this? Do you see this? Do you believe in this Jesus? Do you trust him? Do you see him as your only hope? Your only hope in the face of death? I pray that we would all answer with Martha in verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord. Always a good answer, by the way. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. That doesn't mean that Martha understands everything. She's still seeking understanding, as we'll see. She's still wrestling with these things. And that's what faith is. It's really trusting and seeking understanding, isn't it? And that's what Martha's doing. I know I need resurrection. I know that I need life. I know that Lazarus needs life. And Lord, you are the Son of God. You are the Lord of life. It's you alone that can reverse death and bring life into this dying world. And that's what Martha is beginning to understand. That's the truth. 
that Jesus is pushing her towards and pushing all of us towards as we read this text. But amazingly, she's trusting in this even though she hasn't seen it played out yet. And Jesus is kind enough, gracious enough to not just tell her this truth, but to show her this truth and to show everyone else around her. That's why he moves from truth to tears in the next verse. Now, of course, tears refers to that famously short verse, the verse that every Christian school student wants to be their memory verse in the week, verse 35. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. It's a powerful verse. But we need to understand there's a lot more behind those tears than we might think. We think, of course, tears at a funeral, that makes sense. But Jesus is putting God's glory on display through these tears. And we'll see that starting in verse 32. Verse 32 is, he wields these tears with Mary. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Sounds familiar? It's exactly what Martha said. She must have been lamenting with Martha as they were wondering where their Savior was. Why did he delay? And we would expect that Jesus would walk her through the same questions, would push her towards the resurrection as he did with Martha. But he doesn't. Because he's wise and he knows exactly what each of his children need. And he wields truth and revelation with Martha. But he uses his tears with Mary and the crowd to reveal the same thing, by the way, that he is the resurrection and the life. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, unfortunately, almost every English translation here is very misleading. When we read deeply moved, we think sorrow, don't we? We think grief. That would make sense at a funeral. That makes sense in context. So we don't think twice about this. But the word that John uses here doesn't really mean that in most contexts. It actually means outraged, angry, filled with fury. That's the word he uses instead of deeply moved. That's what it should be. And the following word, greatly troubled, is actually taken from a lot of classical Greek context to mean like horses snorting with anger. That's the description, kind of the convulsions of anger. So these tears aren't merely tears of sorrow. I'm sure part of that was mixed in. But these are tears fueled by anger, fueled by rage, deep distress. Jesus may have even been visibly agitated at this point, to where the crowd would notice Why in the world would he be so angry? Why would he express his tears this way? Where is that coming from? It's not what we normally do at a funeral, is it? Well, we need to recognize it's not because Jesus was surprised by any of this. He knew exactly what he was doing. He didn't get there and be like, oh, I should have planned better. (laughs) I got to fix this. It's not what he's doing. He's also not grieving and angry because he lost his friend in a matter of minutes. He's going to raise him from the dead. So it's not sad or angry over that. Where is it coming from? Well, Jesus' anger and rage is a response to the scene all around him. Seeing Martha and Mary, his sisters, 
grief and struggle and seeing the crowds groaning and crying out in pain. Jesus sees the destruction that sin and death has brought. And he rages against the darkness. He hates what sin and death has done. John Calvin says that Jesus saw in Lazarus' death the general misery of the whole human race. And that's what led to those tears. He also sees the spiritual blindness of Martha and Mary as they struggle to grasp really who he is and the crowd as well follows in that. Look at verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They sound just like Mary and Martha, don't they? Surely Jesus could have done something. Why didn't he? Doesn't he love them? Well, it's too late. Even Jesus can't fix this. They don't understand who he is. They're blind to the solution to their problem right in front of them. Jesus is filled with rage over this. He's filled with sorrow. He's filled with compassion at his creation groaning. His creation that we learned in Genesis was pronounced very good. He sees it suffering in bondage to sin and death, and he weeps. There's a great comfort in that for us, isn't there? That our Savior weeps over the brokenness of this world. That Jesus hates sin and death even more than we do. Jesus hates that parents have to bury their kids at times in our world. He hates that illnesses ravage the people we love, destroy their bodies and their minds, turn them into people we barely even recognize. And he hates that the world is blind to their obvious problem right in front of them. They continue to deny it and deflect it, and they don't see who he is. It's not the way it was supposed to be. And so Jesus weeps. You know, there are some that say that this is really a display of Jesus' brokenness, maybe even his sin. He loses control here. And he gives in to, he's lost all hope. That's not the picture of what's going on here. This is not a display of sin, certainly, as we see later. It's not a display, really, of his weakness. It's a display of his humanity. His perfect humanity in that he would weep with those who weep. The miracle of the incarnation that the Son of God, Emmanuel, God incarnate, would enter into humanity to the point where he felt what we felt. He became one of us down to flesh and bone and sorrow and anger and compassion. And he felt the weight of sin, not his own sin, but the weight of death in this world because he entered into this world to rid us from death forever. As Philippians 2.8 says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as he humbled himself to the point of death, he also became our sympathetic high priest. He actually gets our frailty, our weakness, our humanity. 
Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This is not a picture of sin. This is a picture of humanity as it should be. Grieving and loving his people, hating sin. But you need to know, Jesus didn't just come to grieve. Jesus didn't just come to console us. He didn't just come to be a shoulder to cry on, someone to vent to, someone that says, oh, I'm here for you, but sorry, I can't really do anything about this. He became man to represent us so that he could be the perfect substitute, so that he could live and die in our place, so that when he walks out of the grave, he can give eternal life to everyone that believes, to the whole human race that trusts in him. These tears are evidence that he is man. He's one of us, and he can conquer our greatest enemy, which is sin and death. And these tears are just the beginning. Jesus reveals the truth. He reveals that he's the resurrection and the life through his tears, but he also does it through his transformation of Lazarus. Look at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, still filled with rage. But where does it lead? He came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take the stone away. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. There's Martha still trying to figure things out. She trusts Jesus. It's hard to believe what he's going to do. And I think providentially here, she's announcing to everyone around, Lazarus is gone. He's dead. You're about to see not a display of Christ's humanity and the tears. You're about to see a display of his glorious deity as he is shown as the Lord of life. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? Jesus is saying, Martha, it's come full circle. This is why I delayed This is why I hate sin. This is why I showed my compassion and my love and my sorrow through my tears. It's all coming to a head right now. God's glory will be revealed right in front of you. Don't miss it. Verse 41. So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you have sent me. Oh, don't miss this. This is not just some trivial detail that leads to the glory of God with Lazarus. This is a glimpse into the glory of God itself. This is a glimpse into the relationship between the Son of Man, the Son of God, and His Heavenly Father. The Trinity, the glory of the Trinity is being put on display here through their relationship and then through raising Lazarus. Verse 43 When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. What a scene. Could you imagine this? 
just stop for a second and contemplate what just happened. I feel so often we can get so used to these stories, especially children. I know you've heard this story a million times. You've grown up in the church. You might be tempted to look at these stories and think, oh, there's Jesus walking on water. Ah, raised Lazarus from the dead. Didn't see that one coming. We forget that a man walked out of the grave. Do you imagine what this would have been like to be the person that wrapped Lazarus up and then to unwrap his face and see his face? To hear the gasps in the crowd, to see them being speechless. I mean, what would you say to Lazarus? Hey, long time to see. I, I don't even know. What do you say in that moment? We don't have any of those details. We don't know what Lazarus thought. What Martha and Mary said, we don't have any of that. And there's a part of me that says, come on, John. This is a great time for an interview. Come on, let's get some more details here. We can't forget, this story isn't about Lazarus. This transformation, even this, is about Jesus. I mean, think about it. If Jesus wanted to, he could have raised everyone in that whole graveyard. I'm sure there would have been people that appreciated it. Hey, I saw what you did with Lazarus. My mom's right over here. Please, Jesus, help me. He could have raised everyone. He also could have raised Lazarus permanently. Do you ever think about what a bummer it is that Lazarus had to die twice? Poor guy had to have two funerals. You thought dying once was bad. How horrible that Jesus, in a sense, just rose him for a time. He's not out there somewhere. We can't go find Lazarus. He died again. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he raise Lazarus temporarily? Why wouldn't he raise more people? Well, it's because this is not the ultimate transformation. This is not the ultimate resurrection in the life. This is a shadow, another picture, even a living parable of the great reality to come. And that resurrection is even put into motion by his actions here. Some in the crowd believe. Some in the crowd go to tattle on Jesus to the Pharisees. And they find out what to do with him in verse 49. Look at what 49 says. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation perish. What a tragedy. Do you see Caiaphas' slavery to death? We have to kill this man so we don't die. The blindness, even of the high priest, who's supposed to be this picture of the glory of God. Verse 51, John tells us he did not say this on his own accord. In other words, God was behind that. God was saying something big. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Lazarus' illness did not lead to his own death, but it did lead to Jesus' death. It was the final nail in Jesus' coffin. And Jesus knew if he rose Lazarus from the dead, displaying this power of who he is, it would lead to his own death. And that is the ultimate glory of God. That's the ultimate resurrection. That Jesus lived in our place. 
He obeyed in our place. And when he went to the cross making atonement for sin, taking the wrath of God on himself, when he rose from the dead and walked out of that tomb like Lazarus, he conquered death and sin forever for all who would believe. That's what this was pointing to. That's the ultimate resurrection in life. That's what he came to do. And that's what we can experience even now. Because our hearts are dead in our trespasses and sin. They're hearts of stone. And the Holy Spirit can even resurrect our dead hearts within us. Can give us hearts of flesh. Can do a work of resurrection and life here and now. We can experience this now. Not just in the end. But we will also experience it in the end. Christ will raise us one day. Body and soul. To glory. To eternal life. To experience life with God. Communion with Him forever. And Jesus is just the first fruits of that. He's just the taste of that. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53, For the perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? As believers in Jesus Christ, we have victory over the grave. We can even taunt death because it's no longer our enemy. We can even take great risks for the glory of God because Jesus has and will continue to raise us from the dead. The final question for all of us is the question that Jesus gives to Martha. Do you believe this? Have you trusted in this Lord the resurrection and life as Martha and Mary and the people in the crowd, or you continue to deny and deflect and downplay that you're dying? Will you do that until you stand before God in judgment, facing the second death, eternal damnation for your sin? Oh, I plead with you. Open your eyes. Look at the world dying around us. Look deep into your heart. You know you're dying too. You have to suppress that truth and unrighteousness to not see it. Open your eyes and see the truth that Jesus proclaims. He is the resurrection and life. See it in his tears, in his incarnation. See it in his resurrection of Lazarus. A preview of what's to come and what can happen in your life. Repent. Trust in your Lord who can raise you from the dead. And rejoice that Emmanuel has come and will come again to free us from death forever. Let me pray. Father, we are so thankful for the hope your Son has given us, for the peace we have with you, for the freedom we have from sin and death. And Father, we repent for living as people who are in bondage to death still. Give us boldness, Father, because of our Savior, to risk for your glory, to do things that are difficult so that you may be glorified, that your Son might be exalted and that your glory would spread to the ends of the earth. God, make us bold people to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.